Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello and welcome to part eight of a multi-part series uh, where we are very thoroughly going through and dissecting the new, all now month old, uh, revised memo from the U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division entitled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, updated April 2019. Um, We have delved into the second part of the three-part document, and we are on part B for this episode where we're going to be talking about Program Autonomy and Resources, uh, a really important piece of the puzzle uh, that uh, as far as structure, which is one of the main things we're going to talk about here, is some some nuances is often overlooked by organizations and and in particular documenting uh, that structure and the autonomy of the compliance function. But we'll get into that in a second. Uh, as always, uh, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do. It makes a difference to us if you are, um, particularly if you're getting this on iTunes, although I hear iTunes is going to go away soon. Uh, but wherever you get this, uh, whatever platform you get on, get, get your uh, podcasts on, please do subscribe to the podcast. Please do take the time to review the podcast on those platforms if you have time to do that. Uh, and please, please do feel free to get in touch with us if you have questions uh, suggestions for future episodes, uh, anything that you want to talk to us about, you can reach us at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com. Um, also, before I jump into this, uh, I'll, and I'll mention this at the end of the conversation again, uh, we do have some upcoming webinars uh, with our friends at the Clear Law Institute. The first one will be touching on this very memo that we've been talking about for the last few episodes. Uh, It is going to be on June 19th, 2019 at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. I do not yet have a link uh, for signing up for that uh, webinar, but if you go to clearlotinstitute.com in in the next few days or week and you search uh, compliance, it should come up. Uh, once it do, once the uh, landing page, the sign up page does get set up for that webinar, I will make sure to uh, include it in the show notes, maybe even retroactively for the show notes for this episode and some of the earlier episodes. And then additionally, on June 20th, uh, I will be in Houston, Texas. The Houston chapter of the Association of Federal Defense Attorneys, AFDA, uh, is putting on a panel discussion uh, discussing the uh, this, this self-same memo that we've been discussing uh, entitled the DOJ's New Compliance Guidelines Answering Three Key Questions. Uh, that will be at the offices of Lock Lord LLP in Chase Tower. Uh, that's 600 Travis on the 25th floor, and that will be at 1145 June 20th. Uh, we really, uh, if you're in the Houston area, if you're interested in this, uh, the topic of this memo, uh, it's going to be a great panel. It'll be myself, uh, local assistant U.S. attorney Susie Elmende, uh, Jay Martin, uh, formerly of Baker Hughes, uh, the dean of compliance officers in Houston. For those are those of you who are from Houston and in the compliance field, know Jay, uh, and Marianne Ibrahim, who is the new. 
uh, chief compliance officer at Baker Hughes taking over uh, for Jay. Um, we may also have another panelist that has not been announced yet, so maybe a surprise guest. Uh, but uh, we are going to be talking about this memo uh, at Lock Lord on June 20th at 1145. Uh, so if you are in the Houston area, and I know we have some listeners in the Houston area, and you would like to come out for that, uh, please do join us. If you have any questions about that, uh, upcoming webinars, and I'm going to have a longer list of upcoming webinars as we head into the fall, uh, please do get in touch. I apologize for not uh, providing uh, some of the um, um, registration information. It's just not available quite yet. So with all of that preamble out of the way, today we're going to talk about autonomy and resources as it's titled in the memo. Uh, this part of the memo uh, uh, is uh, one of the ones that uh, has just a few changes, uh, but those changes primarily, again, are these new narrative sections that go along with the former queries or checklist questions that were in the 2017 memo. So we have a couple of uh, fairly lengthy paragraphs to talk about autonomy and resources that are new, uh, cover a lot of the same ground that are in the queries, and we have a new or restructured query around this concept of structure. So I want to talk a little bit about that because that is probably the most interesting new piece, if you will, although it's not you know, uh, uh, it's not a far stretch from expectations uh, that we've seen in the past, but it is worth talking about the differences. First, uh, the uh, section talks about the authority and stature. This is language that came out of the 2017 memo and was in some uh, uh, prior DPAs and MPAs, I believe, as well. Uh, talking about the stature, uh, the authority of the person or persons responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the program. Um, and they talk about this in regards to the day-to-day -day oversight. Uh, that day-to-day -day language, uh, many of you will know, uh, comes out of the sentencing guidelines. And there's a distinction that's sometimes missed uh, when we talk about compliance responsibilities. Uh, the guidelines talk about high-level uh, authority. Uh, so we're talking about uh, sometimes the chief legal officer or chief audit officer who also is uh, the chief uh, compliance officer or has that responsibility or a separate chief compliance officer. But there's also this other role that is discussed in the sentencing guidelines and in this memo and in other guidance that talks about the day-to-day -day or sometimes termed operational uh, compliance um, resources, the compliance the the, the, the compliance. Uh, resources that are responsible for the everyday operation of the program. And those two, those two may not be the same. The high level, in, in a small enough organization or an organization that is pretty lean on, on, its, uh, uh, on, its, uh, on its management, you may have somebody who is the chief compliance officer and also responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the program. That may be one and the same person, uh, but it's sometimes not. And so we have to watch out when, we, um, uh, when we're looking at this guidance and it's talking about day-to-day -day because that may not be the chief compliance person. So when we're talking about authority and stature, we're not talking necessarily about just that person that's designated the chief compliance officer. We're talking about the, the person or persons who are responsible for that day-to-day -day operational oversight uh, of, of the organization. And, and, and the query is going to be, whether those individuals or individual has the authority to act uh, appropriately. 
Um, the, uh, the paragraph uh, goes on to note, as a threshold matter, prosecutors should evaluate how the compliance program is structured. So that's going to delve into this whole question of who, uh, who has what title, who's responsible for what, and what, it, what is their actual authority? Uh, what can they do? What can't they do? Um, how are they placed in the organization? Stature. I mean, that's a pretty specific term. Uh, so if you, for example, have somebody who's nominally designated the chief compliance officer, who's also the general counsel, let's say, in this, in this scenario, uh, but the person who's technically running the program on a day-to-day -day basis is not that person. It's a, somebody whose title might be compliance manager, but that person is way down the chain of command, uh, does not, for instance, have any uh, regular meeting with other executives in the organization, uh, does not meet with the governing authority of the organization, the board of directors or the audit committee of the board of directors, because uh, the chief compliance officer does. So maybe they pass on their reports to that person, but they themselves don't have that access. Those are all going to be things that are going to be plumbed by uh, an assistant U.S. attorney or an investigator or a uh, trial attorney from the fraud section if they are evaluating your program. Um, and I would suggest to you that if that person with, with the day-to-day -day responsibility is pretty far removed from the chain of command and doesn't have that quote-unquote stature, that might be um, an area where you're going to get a lot of questions. It goes on to say that, uh, the, that uh, prosecutors also should look at overall resources, the sufficiency of uh, personnel. So again, if you are an organization that runs really lean, which a lot of organizations do these days, um, you really need to be able to justify uh, your headcount uh, that, that is devoted to the day-to-day -day operation of the compliance program. And it may be that, uh, and many organizations do get along with a relatively low headcount, uh, but you need to be able to uh, make the case for whatever choices have been made and that those, uh, those choices equal appropriate resources. Uh, going back to the stature question, there's a few queries that are in this paragraph. The first is, does that the people responsible for do the people responsible for compliance have quote sufficient authority within uh, the organization? Uh, second, sufficient resources, namely staff. So they're being again very specific here. What's your headcount? Is that is that realistic? Um, you might want to consider, for example, here on on some of these staffing issues and in, in budget issues, doing some benchmarking. Um, there are uh, uh, or, there are some surveys out there. Some of them are getting a little bit older uh, now. Uh, the SCCE uh, NYSE survey that was done now uh, three and a half years ago, I believe, that I worked on when I was at NYSE is still out there kicking around, and it has some of these demographic questions in there about uh, uh, headcount, about budget, uh, that you know gives you at least something to work with uh, for benchmarking. There are some proprietary uh, data sets out there that may not be something that you can uh, uh, that you can get access to relatively easy, but but um, you know you can always do informal benchmarking, right? Call up uh, your peer organizations, um, you know, organ and and ask uh, questions around headcount. Um, budget might be a little bit harder, uh, but but you can get some idea around these issues. I think that you want to be able to justify. Uh, uh, what uh, resources have been brought to bear for compliance in your organization and why that is sufficient. And then the third query is uh, this notion of autonomy. 
sufficient autonomy for management, such as direct access to the board of directors or the board's audit committee. Sufficiency of each factor uh, of these different factors, however, will depend on the size, structure, and risk profile of a particular company. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. That's a really important concept. But let's talk about this uh, uh, sufficient autonomy and linking that to access to the board. I think that's really key. Uh, if I were doing, uh, or when I do a program assessment with an organization, I have a lot of questions that I ask around um, uh, program resources and autonomy. And the, one of the key questions is, uh, who delivers that report? How frequently do the per does that person who is re responsible for the operational day-to-day -day aspects of, of the compliance program, how often are they in front of the board? And maybe they don't deliver uh, the quarterly report to the audit committee of the board directors, but I think that it's getting harder and harder to, sh to suggest that those people have sufficient autonomy and uh, a stature in an organization if you're not allowing them to have access to the governing authority of the organization at any time. Maybe it's only on an annual basis uh, for the state of the state uh, where you're talking about uh, the uh, uh, initiatives around the compliance program. Um, maybe, uh, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's uh, to report out on program assessment or report on, out on specific initiatives. I don't know. But what I can tell you is I always, always uh, have some questions for my clients when I'm doing program assessment. And the answer to the questions around who goes in front of the board at, on a quarterly basis is it's, well, it's the general counsel who's nominally the chief compliance officer, but he or she um, really doesn't handle the day-to-day -day operation of the program. Uh, there's somebody else who really has, who really shoulders that burden. Uh, I think that's a, potentially a problem here, and this is really spelled out in black and white uh, in this first paragraph. Uh, the last thing that they talk about in the first paragraph, which I, I think is really important to note, is it refers back to the uh, one-size-does-not-fit-all concept that uh, has been in the sentencing guidelines for organizations since the beginning. Uh, this notion that uh, uh, a program program's formality and resources uh, depend a lot on the size of the organization. This is really important. Uh, again, we look through this memo the sentencing guideline standards and, and everything else that comes out of uh, DOJ or, 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 other, or other agencies through the prism of uh, criminal prosecution or regulatory enforcement. So organizations, presumably, that this is going to apply to, uh, there have been, uh, there's been at least some question uh, about uh, uh, misconduct or potential violation of the law. So uh, what we know about the demographics of organizations that find themselves in trouble is that they are overwhelmingly small, overwhelmingly. I've talked about this before. Uh, we don't have data on investigations that the Department of Justice provides, so we don't really know uh, the demographics around the organizations that are investigated for various offenses every year. We can't, we can't put a number on that. But what we can put a number on very definitively is the number, is the size, the demographics of organizations that are sentenced in federal court, which, uh, granted, is a small percentage pr probably compared to all of those organizations that are being investigated, not just by the Dep Department of Justice, but all of the regulatory agencies that use uh, similar criteria or look to the sentencing guidelines uh, when they're evaluating corporate compliance programs, whether that's uh, 
whether that's uh, HHS or DOD or SEC, doesn't matter. Um, uh, the rubrics that they look through for, for effectiveness of compliance are, are very similar, right? Um, so uh, that number of that total number of organizations that are under the microscope is going to be larger. But I think we can draw some 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 pretty, uh, I think, reasonable uh, trends from looking at the sentencing commission data on organizations that are sentenced. And what we know from that is it's it's nine out of ten organizations that are small. So this is a really important concept because most organizations that are going to be under the microscope are going to be smaller organizations. They're going to have less than 500 employees. Uh, their annual revenues are probably somewhere south of uh, a half a billion dollars, maybe even way south of a half a billion dollars. Um, so the expectations uh, for their compliance program, uh, the maturity, the formality of it, and the resources devoted to it are going to be very, very different than an organization that is larger and that has uh, a significant uh, uh, revenue and a significant headcount. Um, why that's important is because a lot of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue to talk about for another week or so until I finish walking through the rest of this memo, um, may or may not apply. Uh, uh, and may or may not apply to uh, a, greater, a greater or lesser degree, depend, depending on the size of the organization. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that I'm going to be speaking in front of defense lawyers in Houston in about a week and a half. And that uh, audience, I've been thinking about what's most important if I were still had my criminal defense lawyer hat on, uh, if, this, if I went back in the Wayback Machine uh, 12 years. And what I, what I believe is the most salient, important question to ask uh, if you are either in-house uh, counsel or outside counsel for an organization that you know, potentially is facing an inquiry from a regulatory agency or from the Department of Justice is, uh, how does this apply to us? How do these standards apply to us based on our size? That should be the first question. You know, what maturity level... Uh, of, of programs should we be expected to have. Now, the caveat to all of this is that compliance needs to be taken seriously um, and, and, and be effective uh, uh, no, matter, no matter what the size is. So, so a lot of the things we talk about, um, uh, the, the, you know, the kind of uh, overall queries about whether, the, whether the, 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 the program is implemented in good faith, for example, that doesn't matter. That doesn't change. Um, so if you're small and you don't care at all about compliance and you actively thwart uh, any kind of compliance uh, effort, then then it doesn't matter that you're small. Um, by the same token, if you just don't have a program uh, uh, and any compliance efforts that are uh, that are ongoing are informal because of your size, that doesn't necessarily mean that that program is ineffective. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, size matters uh, in, in uh, designing, implementing, and maintaining a, a compliance program. Uh, that's been true since the sentencing uh, guideline uh, st standards were put into place, and it remains true now, uh, and it's amplified in this memo uh, in Part B on page 10. Uh, interestingly, as we move into the second paragraph, there's another quote uh, that comes uh, from... Uh, 
earlier iterations and the uh, uh, and quotes back to uh, of all things the Caremark case. Uh, the, the citation in the memo is to the, the U.S. Attorney's Manual, but the U.S. Attorney's Manual in that section is actually citing uh, the Caremark case, and they talk about uh, how prosecutors should evaluate whether internal audit functions are conducted at a level sufficient to ensure their independence and accuracy and use that as an indicator of whether compliance personnel are, in fact, empowered and positioned to effectively de detect and prevent misconduct. And in other words, as a proxy for whether you have an effective compliance program, uh, look at the internal audit function. This is a little confusing when it's taken out of context here in this memo. So I wanted to talk about, you know, sort of where it came from. And it, again, it came from our old friend, the Caremark case, uh, which is now uh, well over... 23 years old, my gosh. Um, and uh, we need to put this in context because Caremark wasn't talking specifically just about compliance. It was talking about governance systems. And so the quote from Caremark, uh, the, 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 the items that Caremark, the Caremark court was walking through uh, in, involved um, uh, uh, what uh, information, uh, resources, and um, uh, governance authority was available to the board in overseeing uh, the program at, at, a, at an organization. It was really focused on governance. Um, and, 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 and why this is important is uh, this discussion of internal audit functions when we're talking about compliance program uh, autonomy and resources might have seemed to come a little bit out of the blue. Uh, but I think what the drafters here were trying to do is draw an analogy saying, look, one of the things you can do to uh, approximate the maturity uh, of a compliance program is to look at uh, the relative maturity of some of the other uh, governance functions in the organization. It's worth noting that the, that the uh, um, U.S. Attorney's Manual uh, talks not only about audit, you know, not only quotes the audit function, but talks about reporting uh, systems and uh, uh, and how the uh, directors will um, implement their authority uh, over the, that those systems. So um, that's important when you're reading through this and you see internal audit functions. It, it kind of sticks out at you, but that's where it comes from. The second quote in this um, second paragraph on page ten under B. Uh, talks about uh, experience and knowledge uh, of the person or persons responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the program. Uh, it notes that uh, prosecutors need to evaluate the quality and experience of personnel involved in compliance, such as, they, such as they can understand and identify the transactions and activities that pose a potential risk. This is something that I've talked about many, many times on this podcast and elsewhere. Uh, traditionally, um, when, a, when the compliance function or the oversight function for, for compliance uh, was an almost entirely a legal function, it's not so much anymore, and that's a good thing. Uh, one thing lawyers are not necessarily very good at is admitting when we don't understand something. And that is deadly, deadly to uh, a compliance officer. Uh, compliance officers need to understand uh, what's going on, and they need to, ha to have the willingness to throw their hands up and say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second, slow down. I don't understand what's going on here. Please explain to me 
explain to me what this what we're doing here. What's the business reason for this activity? What are we trying to accomplish here? I need to understand the mechanics. That's a really important um, aspect of uh, compliance officers and where we've seen some massive failures, particularly in the area, for example, of uh, trading. Uh, coming out of Houston, I have a lot of experience back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, working with um, uh, organizations that were uh, trying to peel back uh, the layers and figure out what happened with their, um, their over-the-counter uh, commodity trading activities, for example. And there were more than one, there was more than one situation where the lawyers who were compliance officers or had a compliance responsibility who nominally were responsible for oversight of that activity really didn't understand it at its heart. And, you know, my personal opinion is sometimes those activities are, uh, are, are, are purposefully inscrutable uh, to try to avoid uh, scrutiny. Uh, but but whatever the case might be, um, this is an important point, and I'm glad that uh, the Department of Justice de decided to include this discussion in here because I think that when you're evaluating uh, autonomy and resources and authority and stature, uh, you know that can sometimes be a numbers game. You know what? How big is the budget? Uh, how many um, how many people do we have on staff? But another important question to ask is who is on staff and what, uh, how do they approach their job and are they um, embedded in the operations of the organization in such a way that they understand uh, what's going on and they can uh, therefore be an effective compliance officer because they understand what's going on. So this talks in particular about transactions and activities, but I think that's any kind of business operation. Uh, you as the lawyer, you as the compliance officer uh, responsible for oversight of that activity need to have a pretty good grasp on what's going on. If you don't, or if something new happens, you also have to have the uh, uh, very strong, inquisitive, and uh, sort of humble characteristic where you will come forward and admit you don't understand and uh, get the education you need from uh, the business operations people so you do understand. That is really key. So we've finally gotten through <laughs> the, the new uh, preamble, par two pre preamble paragraphs, but that's really the, the heart of, of the changes. There's also some changes in the first uh, a set of queries around uh, structure. Um, the queries there are where within the company the, is the compliance function housed? Uh, is it the legal department under a business function or is an independent function reporting to the CEO or board? This is a very interesting query here. And I've talked about this before. Um, it's a little obscure, but if you go back and look at the public comment back in 2010, to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, when the U.S. Sentencing Commission was revising uh, uh, the uh, organizational sentencing guidelines, uh, including the relationship between the person or persons responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the program and the governing authority of the organization, there was a push in a letter that is in the public comments, so it's publicly available, from the Department of Justice uh, with the suggestion that um, the compliance function ought to be housed uh, in uh, the legal function. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing a little bit because it's a longer argument than that, but, but basically the position of 
the Department of Justice, uh, or at least the representative of the, of the Attorney General at the time in 2010 was, on the Sentencing Commission was that this should be a legal function, that uh, in their experience, in the department's experience, this usually, whenever they had an interface uh, with an organization around compliance, it was with the lawyer. Well, no duh. Uh, they're only having an interface uh, with compliance when there is a problem, and, and likely that's going to involve more than one lawyer. Uh, so uh, in their wisdom, the, the, and, and I think rightly, the, um, uh, the Sentencing Commission considered that opinion, but but stuck with the opinion of a much broader group of stakeholders that uh, the compliance function is not a legal function, at least not solely a legal function. So it's interesting here to see this pop up again in this newly revised memo uh, that, you know, querying, I mean, it's not explicit, obviously. They're saying we want to look at the structure, but uh, for example, is it within the legal department or business function or independent function? Well, it can be anywhere, you know, and it can be uh, multifunction and it can be independent and it can be not independent. It, it, the, the point of the sentencing guideline standards, we talked uh, uh, earlier about the fact that uh, the sentencing guidelines recognize that every organization uh, uh, is, is, you know, has to have a program that fits its risk profile. Uh, so structure, I think it's important to look at the structure and there needs to be a structure. But the more important question around uh, structure, if you will, is resources and autonomy and stature and the things we were talking about in the first part of this podcast. Uh, the actual organization of where somebody sits and what their responsibilities happen to be, I think is less important. What's important about it, though, is... Uh, to whom do they report and who sets their pay uh, and uh, reviews their performance and uh, ultimately uh, has uh, authority over whether that person responsible for compliance in the organization keeps their job or not. Um, that is an important question. Um, and whether they fall under the legal function or some business operation function or finance or audit or security or an autonomous program or autonomous uh, separate uh, um, uh, uh, structure, uh, that's part of the query here. And, um, uh, you know, to me, that's the more important question is, is who do they report to and how do they report to them? Uh, another query here is the, the second question is, uh, or third question is, uh, is the compliance function run by a designated chief compliance officer or another executive within the company? And does that person have other roles in the company? So are you a dual hat? Again, this is all to me uh, primarily a query around size and scope of the organization. I think it's entirely acceptable to have a dual hat uh, chief compliance officer and chief legal officer for many organizations. It is completely fact specific. There is no right answer here. This is where I differ with my good friend Roy Snell and uh, he has many times uh, made the argument that it has to be completely independent. Um, I understand where he's coming from too, but I don't think that that's the case. There's no one set structure. That's the beauty of the sentencing guideline standards and what the Sentencing Commission has done in the past is they understand that there's not one structure. 
Uh, I think it's important for uh, the department or anybody else who's assessing a program's effectiveness to understand what that structure is, but there is no uh, right answer. And then the last part of this query is something we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, what um, uh, what uh, do the people who are dedicated to compliance, uh, do, they, do they have other responsibilities within the company? And in other words, what's your headcount? You know, who's dedicated 100% to compliance? Um, what's that headcount? What are the resources there? And how do you justify that? You know, have a ready answer uh, for why that is. Uh, you know, benchmarking that against other organizations, for example, to try to find out. Uh, the next area of query is around seniority and stature. How does the compliance function compare with other strategic functions in the company? Uh, to me, you know, going back to the, to the preamble question that kind of jumps out of nowhere around audit committee, or I mean, in, or, I'm sorry, uh, uh, internal audit rather. Uh, if you have a, uh, an organization that doesn't have an internal audit function because you're too small, well, then you probably don't have a, a separate uh, compliance function. But once you get to the point where you have an internal audit program, uh, then you start have to start asking questions around uh, these other strategic parts of your organization, including compliance. I think that's really the key there. Um, the uh, other queries that will be asked around seniority and stature is what's the turnover been for people who are in the compliance role? Uh, how is compliance uh, included or not included in the other strategic and operational parts of your organization? For example, due diligence on acquisitions uh, or actually being on the deal team before the deal is struck uh, and having a seat at the table uh, on, on decisions having to do with sales and marketing and, and other operational functions. So there are going to be queries into how uh, the compliance function is, for lack of a better term, operationalized in your organization. And then uh, th there are a couple of questions around uh, whether, uh, and these are, these are stature questions and authority questions, uh, how, how, how has the company responded to specific instances where compliance raised concerns? And have there been transactions or deals that were stopped, modified, or scrutinized because of compliance concerns? So how have, historically, how has your organization reacted to issues that were brought up by compliance? Uh, presumably, if you have an effective compliance program and serious issues were brought up by compliance, they were handled in an appropriate fashion. If not, um, uh, I don't know how you explain your way out of that uh, uh, box, but but that that is a query that is going to be made. Uh, the next area is experience and qualifications. Do compliance and control personnel have appropriate experience? Well, they ought to. Um, has the level of experience and qualification in those roles changed over time? Well, it has for everyone because this this area has changed over time. And who reviews the performance of the compliance function? When and when is that review process? This one is an interesting one to me because this is not talking about. Uh, you know, what I was talking about a few minutes ago about reviewing the person responsible, uh, you know, being the, um, uh, the uh, executive that the compliance function reports to. This is reviewing the function itself and what is that process. So uh, this is, you know, how do you uh, periodically assess the effectiveness of your program? Do you do that internally or do you do that externally? The vast majority of organizations still do it internally, if they do it at all. 
Um, but more and more organizations, I think, are recognizing the value of at least periodically having an outsider organization uh, with expertise um, review and assess their program and provide them some, um, some needed uh, perspective on the status of their program. So that's important. Funding and resources. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Have there been sufficient, uh, is there sufficient personnel, uh, sufficient, sufficient resources uh, to buy tools and uh, operate the program? And uh, when those requests are made, are they appropriately handled by uh, and, and considered in the budgeting process? Uh, so you want to be able to justify your headcount uh, through benchmarking. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you want to, you know, as best you can, uh, benchmark your budget and 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 your resources and what you're what you're spending on compliance and make sure that's consistent with what the expectations are the last uh, area of query is autonomy do the compliance and relevant uh, control functions have direct reporting lines to the board of directors I already talked about this if the person that has the day-to-day -day operational responsible for, responsibility for the program doesn't have that access you really need to take a hard look at that and have a ready explanation as to why that is not the case how often do they meet with directors? The gold standard is still that, that quarterly board of directors meetings that most organizations have. Um, if you're meeting more infrequently than quarterly with the board of directors, again, I think you're going to want to have a ready explanation as to why that is appropriate in your case. And are senior members of are members of senior management present for these meetings? Uh, in other words, are there executive sessions or sessions where uh, the person responsible for compliance perhaps has the ear of the audit committee of the board of directors without the general counsel sitting there. Um, that is going to be part of the query. And then the last question in this section is, how does the company ensure independence of the compliance, uh, um, compliance and control personnel? Uh, again, this is, a, this is going to be case by case, but I think a lot of it has to do with who do they report to? Do they report directly to the board, not only for reporting purposes, but do does the board hire and fire them? Uh, does the board um, have a say in their evaluation? And if not, how is that handled? And and how what steps has the organization taken to make sure that that autonomy is preserved, even though perhaps uh, they are being supervised on a day to day by the general counsel or the chief auditor or the CEO or some, some group thereof. Uh, that's important. Uh, the, last, the last area in this section um, is kind of an oddball one, and it's something that I don't think comes up that frequently, and, uh, but, it's, but it's here and, it's, and you need to be aware of it. And that's out, what's called outsourced compliance function. Has the company outsourced all or part of its compliance function to external firm or consultant? If so, why? Who's responsible? Uh, what level of access does the firm have to the company's information? How's the effectiveness of the outsourced process been assessed? Really, where this applies to most organizations is your uh, hotline or helpline. Uh, that's probably the most commonly outsourced resource. Uh, and you still have a lot, most organizations still have a lot of control over that uh, system. Uh, so you're going to have, you know, a fair number of tools, I think, here that may potentially fall under this. Um, you know, compliance portals, compliance, um, compliance data, databases, 
uh, other other uh, tools in in software as service um, uh, platforms that uh, might potentially fall here. But uh, the way it's written, it sort of sounds like you've outsourced the compliance function. You've got a uh, outside uh, compliance officer who uh, the hotline rings on their on their desk somewhere else, and uh, they're not inside or internal to your organization. I know that happens. I know that there are some organizations that outsource some or part of the sort of day-to-day, if you will, of, of, of the compliance function. But I think it's fairly rare even for smaller organizations. But if you are an organization that does that, uh, you need to be able to justify it and uh, explain how come that is. <laughs> uh, but, but I think it's pretty rare. So that's what I have to say. This has got to be a little bit longer than what I thought it was going to be, but I think this is an important um, section, uh, autonomy, resources, stature of uh, the compliance uh, personnel. It's really important and uh, really need to pay attention to it. So um, we'll have another uh, edition. We're going on to part nine. I think we're going to have about 11 or so parts. Uh, We're getting towards the end here, and, and some of the sections towards the end I don't think bear a whole... Uh, uh, podcast discussion. Uh, And then we're going to sum up um, as we head into uh, the week of the 20th when I'll be on that panel in Houston, by the way, Uh, and uh, talk a little bit more about what this all means. Uh, But but I hope that you're enjoying this. I hope that you're finding it valuable to kind of parse through this a little bit more thoroughly. Um, As always, I'll have in the show notes uh, the comparison memo put together by Ryan McConnell's team in Houston. I think it's... uh, a really good um, uh, document for you to take a look at. Uh, this memo is a little bit impenetrable in some ways. Um, uh, it's organized. Uh, it's organized very similarly, similarly to the one in uh, 2017. But but it's um, it can be a little bit hard to plow through. And there are some little pieces in here that I hope that we're picking up on, and the in the in these podcasts that you might miss if you just kind of skim through it. And uh, uh, that memo that Ryan and his team put together, I think, is particularly helpful to uh, isolate or highlight uh, the changes from the memo of a couple years ago. So until next time, uh, please uh, uh, do subscribe. Please do um, uh, let us know if you have questions or comments and join us next time. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.